G'day humans, happy new year. What a lot to talk about this week. I, uh, there's a lot on, There's a lot going on in my head. Uh, it's supposed to be a time for reflection, uh, for rejoicing. Maybe rejoicing was last week and this week is the, the reflective, contemplative, uh, what are we going to make of 2023 moment. But there's so much stuff going on in my life. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to say happy new year still. I mean, we're a week in. Uh, Larry David, uh, he's he's not into it. Hey, Larry. Randy. You got it. Yeah. I'm a friend of Susie's. I know, I know, I know, yeah. Happy New Year. Eh, it's a little late, frankly, for the Happy New Year's, you know? Why? Just happened a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's too long. Uh, statute of limitations is kind of run out on the New Year's. Three days. Plenty. Three days. By the way, everything doesn't have to be happy. Well, why does everything have to be happy? So I'm past Larry David's three days. I still I like it. I like Happy New Year. I think it's good. My Christmas tree is still up. Uh, it's a real one. And I, I just want the place to smell of pine and mango for as long as possible. If you're not in Australia, then you don't understand this benefit of the festive season down under. Uh, it's hot and there are tons of mangoes, the likes of which non-Australians simply can't fathom uh, how delicious an Australian mango is. Uh, and, uh, you know, because it's also hot, the, the, tree, the Christmas trees are, are, are constantly wilting. It's a battle against, against nature. It's a battle against the good Lord to try to keep your, uh, your, your Christmas tree adequately hydrated. So uh, the, your house ideally smells of festive Christmas tree oil hanging in the hot, humid air and rotting pineapple, uh, rotting a mango rather, and pineapple if you so choose, coming from the kitchen. It's just delightful, and I want to keep that going until at least Australia Day, uh, which the last time I checked was still on January 26th, but because that's the commemoration of the day on which the Europeans invaded the First Nations people, uh, we're not really supposed to celebrate that. So we'll just say I would keep it, keep the Christmas tree until the day formerly known as Australia Day, which I would never condone because genocide. Is that okay? Can we do that? Oh, while I'm putting my foot in it, can I put my foot in something else also about race? Can I also get myself cancelled about some other racial thing? Because I got this uh, piece of paper. I'll get to it in a second. Uh, the reason this came up in my, my little brain of mine is I was on, uh, I was in a, a, in a, a taxi cab and uh, I missed an opportunity to have what I'm sure would have been a fascinating conversation with a guy, the driver turned out to be Iraqi, but I only found that out at the end of the cab because I'm now too cautious and politically correct about asking anyone where they're from for fear that I'm somehow going to get cancelled in a taxi. I don't know who, I don't know why, but no, I want to be nice, you know, and I don't know if, I don't know if the Iraqi taxi driver is a 22-year-old woke university student. I mean, I know that he isn't because he's obviously not. He's clearly a mid-50s Iraqi gentleman, not a 22-year-old uh, woke uh, university student. Nonetheless, I don't know what is, what's going on in his brain and I, don't, I just don't want to go there. And it reminded me of some fabulous conversations that I've had uh, with your taxi drivers from abroad where... I'd never be, I would never have been so rude as to be like, where are you from? Or like, oh, oh, you sound not Australian. You're clearly not one of us. What are you doing in my country? I wouldn't phrase it like that. I wouldn't say, what are you doing here? I wouldn't say, go back home to the land you came from, you foreigner. I wouldn't say such a thing. 
the way I would phrase it is I would say, oh, so did you grow up in Sydney? That's what I'd say. Uh, and they'd get the hint. You know, they'd say, well, no. No, of course not, they didn't grow up in Sydney. Listen to how I speak. Because they were all Israeli grocers. Uh, apparently. But, you know, you'd ask them, you'd try to tease it out of them, and you go, how, how you know, well, did you grow up here? Or, well, you know, where are your parents from? Or, like, you know, where did you grow up? You know, are you from? You just, you find a way to do it that's a bit delicate. I always was like that because I'm a polite, gentle person. Um, and I'd have fascinating conversations with people because, you know, they're all, like, they're nuclear physicists and stuff who've been exiled from the Iranian regime where it was like they either had a choice of having their fingers chopped off and being hanged in a public square, or they could leave. And they, many of them, wisely chose to leave for, frankly, a better place anyway. I'm sure Sydney's nicer than Tehran. So you'd have these fascinating conversations with these people who wouldn't be qualified to work in the industries in which they were uh, trained here, uh, you know, because we keep Australian jobs for Australians and whatnot, and not for your... uh, Iranian cab drivers, but nonetheless, they'd be uh, they'd be earning a living. They'd be doing a earning a good wicket, as we say in cricket mad countries. And I'd chat to them, and we had great bonding moments like that. Now I get that nobody wants the kind of experience that one of my friends has had. She's Australian as Australian can be, born and raised in Australia, Australian citizen, Australian resident all her life. Her parents are ethnically Chinese from Hong Kong. And when she entered the US once, had one of those asshole customs guys look at her passport and go, where are you from? And she was like, Australia. No, where are you from? Australia, Australia, what do you mean? No, where are you really from? Like glaring at her. And she's like, well, I was born and raised in Australia, but if you mean why do I look like this, then it's because my parents, like that's horrible. That's just fucking ignorant and stupid, especially since half of Australia has arrived since the Second World War and we're one of the most multi-ethnic countries in the entire world. Uh, But that kind of... I mean, I've had shitty attitudes like that from customs people. I I, I used to live in a street called Pineapple Street in Brooklyn Heights in New York and coming through customs once, the bloke goes, hmm, Pineapple Street, huh? A lot of fruits there? I was like, what? It's like a lot of fruits, a lot of frou-frous, a lot of fruity tooties. Like, I was like, what are you, so you're implying that I'm a homosexual because I live in Pineapple Street? I mean, yeah, you know, dickheads are going to be dickheads. Nonetheless, I was unable to strike up a conversation with uh, this Iraqi cab driver because I didn't find out until the very last moments of the cab of the cab ride when he offered it to me without my inquiring that he was from Iraq. And I realized that the previous 20 minutes of my life could have been, A, much more interesting, and B, could have involved much more community and a sense of comedy and, uh, uh, I guess, connection between me and this guy, two people who live in Sydney, uh, mixing the cultures of the world. Fostering goodwill and understanding uh, between this planet's great nations and also between this planet's great nations and Iraq. The reason why I've been reticent to ask people is because, I don't know if you saw this thing that happened at the end of last year, a little over a month ago, uh, with the woman at Buckingham Palace. She, if, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. There's this, there was this charity woman... And Gozi Falani 
is her name, except it's not actually her name. Apparently her name is actually uh, Marlene or Marlena Headley. Anyway, uh, African English, you know, an English woman. Uh, she's a, oh, see, I, I'm already canceled myself. She's not an African English woman. She's an English woman. She's a citizen, a resident, born and raised in the UK. I think she was born, maybe. Anyway, she grew up in London. Um, and her parents are immigrants from Barbados. And she's very African. And when I say very African, I'm not talking about her skin color, although that also happens to be, frankly, very African. I'm talking about the fact that whenever you see her on TV, as I just have on a clip from Good Morning Britain, where she's talking about the tremendous horrors that she endured at the hands of the royal family, she's wearing a, a headdress uh, thing on over her head, which is uh, red, uh, yellow, and green. And she's wearing big dangly earrings that are red, yellow, and green. And she's wearing a necklace of beads that are red, yellow, and green. And she's wearing a shirt with red, yellow, and green stripes, flag stripes. Now, if you know anything about flags, you know that red, yellow, and green is the pan-African flag. That's the color of many African countries. It's the color of the Ethiopian flag, the Guinean flag, the Cameroon flag, the Ghanaian flag, the Senegal flag, the Mali flag. Green, yellow, red. She's on this show, Good Morning Britain, complaining about the fact that a palace aide assumed that she was African instead of British. There was this function at Buckingham Palace and Prince Harry's godmother, is that who this person was? Lady, Lady Hussey. Her name's Hussey? Really? Oh, unfortunate. I suppose 83 years ago, Hussey didn't mean what it did today. Anyway, Lady Hussey, 83 years old, is basically asking you know, people where they're from. And, you know, but she's making chit-chat, essentially. But she's not just making chit-chat. She's also trying to acquire information about all of the guests that she will subsequently pass on to the royals so that the royals don't make, the mistake, make mistakes and know, they know who they're talking to. So she's the Queen's senior lady-in-waiting. She's very senior at the Buckingham Palace. I mean, she's 83 years old. Of course she's very senior. You know, it'd be, it'd be weird, wouldn't it, if she was a work-experience girl. She's like, how long have you been here? You're 83 years old? Yes, I just arrived three months ago. I'm on an internship. It's my first time in the palace. No, she's been there for all her life. She's the, she was the Queen's senior lady-in-waiting. And she was sub, she's subsequently been booted out of the palace because of this. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, why do you focus on, like, culture war things and identity politics when all it is is just people arguing on Twitter? It doesn't have any consequences. There's, you know, there's nothing real. It's not real. It's just idiots on social media arguing with each other. Well, to those who say I'm too online, is there anything less online than Buckingham Palace? I mean, is there anything more old school and establishment and less new media than Buckingham bloody Palace? And this is where this kind of madness has gotten to. And it's not that I have any sympathy for an 83-year-old mildly racist lady. It's that I have sympathy for the Iraqi cab driver who didn't get to have a nice chat with sparkling personality, radio personality Josh Sepps, uh, because I was too encumbered by a whole new set of norms that don't make any bloody sense. So anyway, Lady Susan Hussey, that little hussy, 
uh, even after giving a personal apology to Ngozi Fulani, whose name wasn't Ngozi Fulani until she decided to become all Africanized. Her name was Marlene Headley. So Ngozi was invited back to the palace uh, for a personal apology after being asked where she was really from. Actually, I should read you the transcript, shouldn't I, of what happened. This is according to Ngozi. Uh, She tweeted this. This all comes from Twitter. She tweets something and Prince Harry's godmother gets fired as a result. And like the BBC was reporting on this, like, you know, there was an asteroid headed towards Earth that they needed to tell people about for days on end. Here's the full conversation, as recounted on Twitter by Ngozi Fulani. Lady SH, Lady Sh, Susan Hussey. Where are you from? That's how I'm assuming she speaks. I haven't heard her. Uh, Me, this means Ngozi. Sister Space, no, where do you come from? We're based in Hackney. No, what part of Africa are you from? I don't know. They didn't leave any records. Well, you must know where you're from. I spent time in France. Where are you from? Here, the UK. No, but what nationality are you? I'm born here. I'm British. No, but where do you really come from? Where do your people come from? My people? Lady, what is this? Oh, I can see I'm going to have a challenge getting you to say where you're from. When did you first come here? Lady, I'm a British national. My parents came here in the 50s when... Oh, I knew we'd get there in the end. You're Caribbean. No, lady. I'm of African heritage, Caribbean descent, and British nationality. Oh, so you're from... And that is where she leaves the uh, conversation. She's very specific. I'm of African heritage, Caribbean descent, and British nationality. Like Lady Hussey should have guessed that, you know, should have been obvious all along. I don't quite know what to do with all this. So anyway, then she tweeted that the Buckingham Palace went into uh, total and complete meltdown. Uh, the BBC was reporting on this. The Guardian was reporting on this as if it was, you know. And then, of course, because they were reporting on this so much, then the real racists come out of the woodwork and spew an immense amount of hate at this poor woman Ngozi Falani. Uh, who then has to endure genuine racism. I mean, this is part of the problem with the whole ident- with the whole extent to which everyone has to tread on eggshells and worry about tr- accidentally triggering tripwires here. The moment you do, it gives actual racists and true bigots ways to say, see, the whole thing is kind of made up and we're actually everyone is on our side. This is just any sensible person would think that black people actually belong outside the UK. This is what we've been saying all along. The UK's for white people. Like, people who believe that are only empowered and emboldened and find sucker when you have these kinds of flare-ups that divide reasonable people. Because all of a sudden, it seems like the number of people who are in this argument at all is a significant number. Nobody should be in this argument Nobody should be even on this terrain. We shouldn't even be talking about any of this. It should be obvious that if you're a person who wears African earrings and an African bead necklace and an African shirt and an African headband and you're at Buckingham Palace chatting to an 83-year-old Queen's lady-in-waiting who is asking you questions presumably to understand your context and is seeking to grasp a greater understanding of why you are there and who you are and what you do, then to take enormous umbrage 
at the fact that she's obviously inquiring about your background is either a way of just drumming up publicity or of being overly hypersensitive. Whatever it is, the consequence is to take us into into terrain that we don't want to be playing on. Like, I mean, these things, these skin colour differences and cultural differences should really be as unimportant as we can possibly make them. I'm not sure that we want as a society to be opening up the Pandora's box of constantly thinking about people's race and background and everything. When it comes up, it can come up. But to insist that it must never come up when you're kind of playing a role in provoking it's coming up because you're wearing African garb, that's so disingenuous as to be essentially poking a tiger that we really should be content to leave sleeping. The tiger of our various identities. I'm not sure it's good to be exacerbating this stuff. So anyway, then Lady Hussey gets fired at the age of 83 from her position as one of the ladies of the household. That's the honorary position. She offered her profound apologies for any hurt caused. Ngozi Falani says that although she didn't experience physical violence, she would describe her encounter as, quote, a form of abuse. So is that are we agreeing on this consensus then that we you can't ask we can't ask each other about our backgrounds? Is that it? I mean I I constantly deal with people mis mis uh, not misgendering, mis sexualityizing me and assuming that I'm straight and asking me about my wife. Is that a form of abuse? Is that a microaggression? It's sure annoying. When I was in living in America for 12 years, I was constantly misinterpreted as being from Britain, sometimes New Zealand or South Africa. Is that offensive? I mean, I get that there's a context to anti-black racism that is heaps more severe than being mistaken for a Brit when you're actually an Aussie. I suppose that depends on how much you look down on Brits. But you know, the, the same can't be said of being gay. That is also an oppressed minority historically. I don't believe it is today, but then I don't believe that being black is on the whole a liability today, all other things being equal. And yes, and yes, and yes, I can hear all of the people see, gasping and hoping for the qualifications that I need to add. The throat clearing. The things like saying... Of course, it's still the case that racism exists and, of course, it's still the case that there are massive disparities in health, wealth, income and well-being between black people in English speak, in the Anglosphere and uh, white people. But that's different depending on what community you look at. If you look at Nigerian Americans, they're wealthier than white Americans and that's true for all kinds of different minorities. Um, so it's, you know... You can't, say, you can't say that that is directly the cause of modern-day racism. If you held all other things equal, if I were a university-educated, uh, well-spoken uh, white person, uh, white male, say, and I had exactly the same manner and education uh, and way of comporting myself and expertise, and I was a woman of colour, then do you seriously think that the advantage currently in 2023 goes to the white man if we were, for example, going for a job? Or that diversity quotas would give me an advantage if I was a woman of colour? Now, 
Of course, it's likelier if I'm a white male that I come from some privileged cohort clique and have gone to a private school or whatever than if I'm a woman of colour. So there are all these structural uh, things that we have to address as well. But in 2023, I am not actively discriminated against as a gay man and Ngozi Falani is not actively discriminated against as a woman of colour. And to the extent that we are, that's because bigots are being bigots. And they should be rightly driven from the public square and sidelined and excluded. But to treat every single person who fails to have gotten the memo on precisely how we as an upper-middle-class, university-educated elite insist that everyone must speak about identity, to treat all of those people as if they were the same as irredeemable white supremacists or homophobes is only going to cause problems. Because then irredeemable white supremacists and homophobes think that they have a larger cohort of allies than they actually do. So... I will go to bed wondering what the life story of my Iraqi cab driver truly was. Uh, One last uh, thing, well, it's not last, it's one other thing on this fantastical journey through my interesting week. Uh, Damar Hamlin, the, uh, the footballer who collapsed during an NFL game on Monday as a result of a cardiac arrest, he literally dropped dead live on TV, Monday Night Football, Uh, horrifying stuff. He was revived on the field. And this has now become, and I keep getting drawn into this because somehow I'm Mr. Myocarditis. Speculation has been made, shall we say, by people who believe that vaccine side effects are being uh, downplayed because of big pharma. This is being used as uh, yet one more incident of probable vaccine injury. So I just want to address that briefly. Uh, There's a condition called commotio cordis, or is it commotio cordis, which occurs when someone gets hit in the chest with serious trauma at a specific time during the heart cycle. Now, it should be noted that more than 100 people die in contact sports every year. I think it was professional contact sports in the United States. I'll have to fact check that and get back to you. But I was reading an article saying this is not, it's actually not that rare that people get smashed in the heart and the heart can't take it. A cardiologist, Khalid Al-Jabri, went on Twitter to explain this. It triggers ventricular fibrillation that causes people to collapse. What happened to Damar Hamlin, we'll have to presumably wait for, you know, further investigation. But what seems to have happened is he stood up for a few seconds, then lost consciousness. That's perfectly consistent with commotio cordis. The loss of consciousness starts about eight seconds after the last heartbeat and circulatory standstill occurs after about 10 to 15 seconds. We don't know the vaccine status of Damar Hamlin. But many people in the anti-vax community, like Charlie Kirk, the right-wing young poster boy activist, said things like, Hamelin's injury is all too familiar in recent years and 
people will wake up to the truth about the vaccine. A lot of anti-vaxxers on social would just use the syringe emoji to imply that the vaccine was responsible for Hamlin's cardiac situation. But what I loved about this the most was that there's this scientist, Dr. Paula Cannon, who's a professor of molecular microbiology and immunology and expert in vaccines at the University of Southern California at their Keck School of Medicine. And she's quoted in a Rolling Stone piece. I wanted to get her on uh, on the show this week, but uh, she said that she doesn't want to kick the hornet's nest. It's just like, you know, she's not a specialist in, in uh, she's not a cardiologist. She's a vaccine expert. But she says, she's quoted as saying, why do people look for zebras instead of looking at the fucking big horse that hits him? I love a scientist who just swears to a journalist and they print it. When somebody is tackled in a football game, she says, and then seconds later keels over, you know that's a big and very vanilla horse that hit him. It's not an exotic endangered spotted leopard. The rarity there that she's referring to is the extreme rarity of severe cardiac consequences from taking the vaccine. See, the problem is, and I did did do a story about this a couple of weeks ago because Karen Phelps, who is a physician and who used to be the head of the Australian Medical Association and a parliamentarian after that, uh, she and her wife both got uh, side effects from the mRNA vaccines. And so they've made a submission to a parliamentary inquiry in Australia into uh, vaccines and into into COVID, into the pandemic and so on. And she's saying we need to have more conversations. The mainstream media has to have more conversations, honestly, about the side effects of vaccines. So I had her on my radio show, on my ABC radio show, and I had uh, a leading cardiologist in Sydney who is actually on the, you know, the anti-vaxxers would like him because he's someone who is, excuse me, speaking out about the significant increase in pericarditis and myocarditis that he's seeing among young male patients. Um, and he's saying that we should be aware of this. He's saying that if you're a young male, then just take AstraZeneca or Novavax. Don't take Pfizer or Moderna, because why would you bother with the risk? Nonetheless, he's saying that the cases he sees are very mild. He hasn't seen any a single serious case. Uh, you're talking about um, you know things that don't have any long-term consequences by and large, where you've got a kind of a, a mild puffiness, essentially, of the heart muscle, which can be uncomfortable, but which generally goes away. And he's still saying that he's seeing far more, far more, disproportionately more from unvaccinated young people who've had COVID. It is 10 times, this is still, in his opinion, 10 times likelier to get a severe case of heart inflammation from catching COVID than from any of the vaccines. And I'm, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because I still, every single day, I get tweets from people who spend too much time online and are following, you know, oh, here's, you know, it, it now does seem that there are consequences from the mRNA vaccine of getting in, an inflamed heart, especially if you're a male under the age of 30. But this is not being suppressed. The Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia, which is the, advi- the government advisory body that recommends things, already said like six months ago, in the middle of last year, that males under 30 should avoid the, uh, the mRNA vaccines and opt for a different vaccine, it's, it's, not the, it's not recommended. If you go to, if for, for months and months and months now, if you go to a doctor and you're in that age cohort, they've said don't, don't get the mRNA vaccines because of this, this you know, moderate risk of a very mild condition that you will recover from. That condition does not cause cardiac arrest. 
Myocarditis does not cause cardiac arrest. It does not fatally weaken your heart and make it more likely that when you get smashed in a football game, you're suddenly going to die of a heart attack. That's not what the cardiologists say. That's not the case. Pericarditis also does not cause cardiac arrest. So Hamlin got CPR on the field. His heartbeat was restored. And this immunologist, Paula Cannon, at the University of Southern California, says that it is frustrating that we're talking about a completely unrelated issue, a COVID vaccine, when we should be talking about the elephant in the room, which is concussion sports, and how we're still not making this sport safer. Um, So yes, if you're one of the people who keeps banging on about myocarditis because you keep seeing that there are increasing numbers of studies that show that there's a relationship between mRNA vaccines and mild inflammation of the heart, I know, I'm aware of that. It doesn't change my opinion about anything that I said when Joe Rogan and I got into an argument about it last January, because what I was saying was that the risk of serious health complications from getting an inflammation anywhere in your body, but specifically the heart, are greater when you catch COVID and the COVID virus causes inflammation all over your body, including in your heart, than from getting any of the vaccines. And that holds true in every age cohort and all of the vaccines. But the point is, if you are going to get a vaccine, and you should, why would you bother getting the mRNA one when it has this elevated risk? Let's do something fun now. Not that this hasn't been fun. I mean, this has been a fucking joy, right? I mean, this is who wants, who wants anything else out of their day than hearing me ramble on uh, with my uninformed medical opinions about uh, American footballers and their fate. Uh, nonetheless, there's something even better that I have, which is that someone's died. I mean, that's not better. That's a bad thing, the death. But it yields uh, something good that you're about to hear. The gentleman's name is Chris Ledesma, and he has died after 34 years of being the head of music on The Simpsons. First of all, can you believe that The Simpsons have been around for 34 years? 1989. They started in the 80s. Is that true? Uh, And he's just, uh, he retired in May, last May, uh, 2022. And he was responsible for basically all of the music on all of the episodes of The Simpsons. And if you cast your mind back to all of your favorite episodes of The Simpsons, man, there are a lot. I mean, the music is fantastic. So let's hear some of it. Uh, I want to begin with uh, one of my favorite episodes. It's written by Conan O'Brien. He got his start before he got even back in the day, you know, his first version of Late Night. He was a writer on The Simpsons. That was his first big break. And he wrote an episode in which Springfield gets a monorail. And they get a monorail because a smooth-talking traveling salesman named Lyle Lanley comes to town. Uh, and manages to sell them on this monorail. Uh, He does so with this parody of The Music Man. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. 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 
I hear those things are awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the trap could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us, Brendan Slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? No good, sir. I'm on the level. The ring came off my pudding can. Take my penknife, my good man. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. What's it called? Once again. Oh, cracked and broken. Sorry, Mom. The mother spoken. Mono, don't. <laughs> possibly uh, my favourite song from possibly my favourite episode of The Simpsons. One of the other great songs to revisit is when Marge stars as Blanche Dubois in a musical production of Streetcar Named Desire that ended with this important moral. You can always depend on the kindness of strangers to lock up your spirits and shield you from dangers. Now here's a tip from Blanche you won't regret. A stranger's just a friend you haven't met. You haven't met. Regard. Love it. And not quite as good, in my opinion, as my favourite music. Well, there are so many favourites. This is one of my many favourites. I still remember... This was a moment at which I just realised that The Simpsons was doing something completely different than anything I'd ever seen. Uh, it's the episode where Apu is, he's going to lose the Quickie Mart. You know, he runs the convenience store. I think he's not going to be able to keep it or something. I don't even remember the premise. But basically he realises that he'd rather live with The Simpsons than work at the Quickie Mart, which he has made his professional life. And he sings this song about who needs the Quickie Mart. You see, whether igloo, hut, or lean-to, or a geodesic dome, there's no structure I have been to which I'd rather call my home. When I first arrived, you were all such jerks, but now I've come to love your quirks. Maggie with her eyes so bright, Marge with hair by Frank Lloyd Wright. Lisa can philosophize, Bart's adept at spinning lies. Homer's a delightful fella, sorry about the salmonella. <laughs> That's okay. Ah! Who needs the quickie mark? Now here's the tricky part. Oh, won't you rhyme with me? Needs the quickie mark. That was a sticky mark. They made that sticky mark. Let's hurl a bricky mark. The quickie mark is real dope. But of course, it wasn't that simple for Apu later that night. They see him on the roof. Who needs the quickie mart? I do. Hey, he's not happy at all. He lied to us through song. I hate when people do that. That may just be the greatest falsetto that uh, I've ever heard in uh, cartoon history, although apparently Apu is cancelled now, uh, so we're not allowed to listen to that anymore. There was also a time that Homer started his own barbershop quartet. Do you remember? He starts the barbershop quartet, and the only th- the thing that comes to mind to write a song about is 
the little sticker that goes on the back of his car window that says baby on board because he thinks you just look at something and then you figure out a song about it. It can't be that hard to write a song about whatever's right in front of you. So why not write a song about the baby on board sticker? And a one, and a two, and a three. Boom, 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 boom. Baby on board, how I'm adored. That sign on my car's window pane. Bouncing my step, loaded with pep. Cause I'm driving in the carpool lane Call me a square friend, I don't care That little yellow sign can be ignored I'm telling you it's mighty nice Each trip's a trip to paradise With my telling you these things have legs as actual music Uh, that's actually a good song unlike uh the planet of the apes musical starring the failing movie star troy mcclure uh oh god bless phil hartman how funny was he especially as troy mcclure playing the evil ape scientist dr sayers dr sayers dr sayers dr sayers dr sayers dr sayers Oh, Dr. And Troy McClure's main number in that musical is Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off. I hate every ape I see From chimpanzee to chimpanzee No, you'll never make a monkey out of me Oh my God, I was wrong It was Earth all along you finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you finally, finally made a monkey out of me. I love you, Dr. Zayas. I also love how these actors who can actually sing are able to do perfectly just not quite right singing as these characters. They would be able to hit the note and they don't do it so badly that it's incredibly obvious. It's just a little bit off, just a little off. Uh, two more, two more. Uh, just to in- indulge me for a moment. Let me hear two more. What about when Homer becomes a member of the Stonecutters Secret Society, uh, the secret ancient organization which is a parody of the freemasons and he has to sing their stonecutter song who controls the british pound who keeps the metric system down we do we do who leaves atlantis off the maps who keeps the martians under wraps we do we do Holds back the electric car. Who makes Steve Gutenberg a star? We do, we do. Who robs Kingfish of their sight? Who rigs every Oscar night? We do, we do. 
the Stonecutter song, but my favourite, along with the mono, monorail, I have many favourites, okay, many favourites, but along with the monorail song, my other favourite is Mr Burns's Great Number. Uh, it's basically the plot of 101 Dalmatians where he plays Cruella DeVille's character. Uh, the Simpsons get greyhound puppies. He says that he wants to care for the greyhound puppies. Of course, he doesn't just want to care for the greyhound puppies. He wants to kill them and skin them and turn them into a coat. Uh, and the song that he sings is a parody of Be My Guest from Beauty and the Beast. Some men hunt for sport, others hunt for food. The only thing I'm hunting for is an outfit that looks good. Best made from real gorilla chest. Feel this sweater, there's no better than authentic Irish setter. See this hat, it was my cat, my evening wear vampire bat. These white slippers are albino, African endangered rhino, grizzly bear underwear, turtles' necks. I've got my share, beret of poodle on my noodle, it shall rest. Dry my red robin suit, it comes one breast or two. See my vest, see my vest, see my vest. Like my loafers, former gophers, it was that who skinned my chauffeurs, but a greyhound for tuxedo would be best. So let's prepare these dogs. You two for matching dogs. See my vest, see my vest. Oh, please, won't you see my vest? I really like the vest. So there you have it. The uh, Just a few of the great musical numbers from The Simpsons uh, over the past 34 years. Vale, Chris Ledesma, who was the man uh, behind all of them. I want to leave you today with a, a little clip from uh, my radio show on ABC Radio Sydney. Sometimes you just go into a segment. Uh, you know, we do a lot of, uh, a lot, there's a lot of talking on the radio. Don't know if you know that about the radio, uh, but that's one thing it's got going for it and against it. A lot of talking. And when you're doing your uh, your three-hour show, or as it ha- as the case may be, at the moment, a four-hour show, six to ten in the morning. I mean, who does that? Josh Epps does that. Uh, that's the kind of tireless effort you can expect me to put in, ladies and gentlepersons. Uh, nonetheless, when you're doing a show like that, you know, sometimes there'll just be a short segment. It might be three minutes long. It might be six minutes long. You don't have very long. You've got to go to the news. You've got to go to the weather. You've got to go to the traffic. I don't know why you have to go to the traffic. It makes no sense. This is just a thing you have to do in radio. Like, don't we have, well, doesn't everyone have an app now? Who, every time I raise in a meeting a, a question about why are we doing traffic in 2023? Is it why, like, the odds that I'm sitting in my car in the exact spot that you're talking about where there's a problem, it, it's vanishingly small. It, it, Sydney is a huge city. It has a massive geographical footprint. It's like, it's like 100 miles by 100 miles in both directions. It's got, like, hundreds of thousands of roads and you're going to tell me that there's an accident on the Wakehurst Parkway? The odds that that's affecting me are minimal. And I have a perfectly good solution if there is an accident on the Wakehurst Parkway. I look at the map app or at my sat-nav on my car. Ah, don't get me started on traffic. Anyway, so, you know, every 10 minutes you go to the traffic person. I'm in a helicopter. It looks like there are cars on the road. There's a car on the freeway and it's broken down. Yeah, I knew that seven minutes ago. 
because Waze told me, anywho, so you're doing these uh, segments and they fit into quite short periods of time and uh, you don't know who you're talking to. Sometimes you, the guest is, is someone, it's usually someone you've never spoken to before because they're an expert in something or other. Um, well, I had, a, I had a lovely person on uh, uh, this week. Uh, I'd never spoken to her before. Her name is Dr. Grania Cleary. She's an ecologist at Deakin University and she's the author of a book called Why Do Birds Do That? She's a bird expert. And we wanted to do a segment in defense of seagulls. I, I sometimes do this segment on my afternoon show where we pick a creature that is much maligned like the rat or the cockroach or the mosquito and we go to someone who's an expert in that, that creature and we ask them, uh, you know, sell, it, sell us on it. Uh, tell us why we should love this thing. What's unusual or interesting about this thing that might make me realize, oh, you know what, a rat isn't all bad. Uh, it's got X, Y, and Z going for it, or X, Y, and Z, if you're in North America. So I thought to uh, look at summertime. Uh, we've got a lot of seagulls flying around all, all over the place, stealing people's sh- chips and uh, burgers and, and fish. Why don't we do a little in-defense of seagulls and uh, have a listen to this. Uh, you'll either love uh, this uh, guest or you won't love this guest, but uh, enjoy about five minutes of my conversation about seagulls with uh, Dr. Grenya Cleary. Today, because it's summertime, we thought we would try to defend the seagull, uh, perhaps the most hated bird in uh, Sydney, although the bin chicken's probably close. Uh, Dr. Grania Cleary is a research fellow at the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at Deakin University, has written a piece for the conversation defending seagulls and uh, trying to convince you, using a few facts, why you might actually like seagulls. Uh, Grania, thanks for being here. Good morning to you. And as you said, most hated birds along with the bean chicken. And probably for you guys, yell brush turkey. I love a brush turkey. I don't mind oh, a brush turkey too. at all. Look, as long as you're not camping and they don't get into your stuff, brush turkeys are fine. And I think all Sydney siders <laughs> do have a, a secret love for the ibis, you know, even though we, oh, we have yeah. to start. But the seagull, the seagull is both irritating and unpleasant and... <sighs> So, so what, why should I love a seagull, Grania? That is just your point of view. First of all, they are awesome birds. They, so this word seagull, sea that we put in front, they can actually do very well away from the sea. And we see this when they, when they pop up in places like Orange, where they actually adapt very well. Oh. And this is something that's very important in our urbanized world as we take their resources as we take fish from the sea you know they're losing their food source so they're looking around and saying okay well where's all the food going oi that's where they're going into bloody city siders on bondi beach excuse me i have paid good money to have fishing fleets go out and trawl the seas dry so that i can have my fish and chips it's my fish and chips not the seagulls fish and chips Oh, see, the seagull look you and go, okay, let's put up a fight for it. Here I come. But hang on. Surely there are more seagulls around the fish markets now than there would have been before we we benevolent humans gave them fish and chips. Well, see, if we didn't give them fish and chips, they they were hunting. Against against our will. 
They are now, but look, first of all, the fish is gone from their sea. So they have to find another way of eating. And one way they have found is they'll scavenge off food that we have. Now, if we look at them taking it directly from our plates, we do have this problem around the opera house, especially when people are out trying to eat. And this is a big tourist spot, so it doesn't go down very well. So, but... Seagulls are very smart. They work in teams and they can often outwit us. So what we've had to do, you know, the fake streamers, putting on loud noise, putting up fake owls, none of it works. But what does seem to be working is having a man walk his dog. The Hmm. dog will continuously run after seagulls stopping them actually landing. So that is a good deterrent. Look, you live in Australia. A lot of birds evolved in Australia. We have to learn to work with our birds and learn just to share our space. Like the ibis, you know, we call them yell bin chickens. Here they are eating the cane toad. The cane toad is one of the biggest threats for biodiversity in Australia. Mm. And here is the humble bin chicken bloody killing them for us. <laughs> you know, these uh, birds are amazing. And I know, you know, people get bad about seagulls and they can be intimidating. And part of the reason for that is that they work in teams. But mm. they work in teams the way we do. They learn from each other. And I've got something to tell you that will freak you out, is that we research has shown that some seagulls have learned how to to watch what we're watching, how to look where we're looking. So what they'll do is they'll look at you eating your fish and chips and they'll watch your gaze. So the white around our eyes, around our iris and our pupil shows the direction of our gaze. And we think this evolved when we were hunter-gatherers and we'd be out hunting in packs and having to communicate with, you know, fellow hunters about what we were looking at. The seagulls, if you notice, birds don't have the white around the eyes. Mm. They hide what they're looking at. They've got beady, nasty little eyes with no... Oh, my God, they do not. Just black little... The black eyes of death. Oh, my God, they do Uh, not. (laughs) The good thing is you said that they're a bit of a hassle around the opera house, but fortunately on New Year's Eve nobody could make it to the opera house, so there was was, I guess it was just free reign for the seagulls at that point. Grania, are there different types of seagulls? Because I do find that if if I'm walking on a distant moor somewhere and there's a large seagull just catching a breeze and sitting there, I can find a certain beauty in it. It's only the seagulls that are grabbing a cheeseburger out of my hands at Darling Harbour that I resent. Are there different kinds? Oh, look, listen to that. Now, what you're talking about is probably the herring gull we get off in Scotland, which is a bloody big bird. Now, that's a bird to be intimidated by. Mm. But here in Australia, we got these silver gulls, and we don't like them when they're in urban areas. We want them to go back to the sea, get out of my face, go away. But we've taken their habitat We've taken the fish from the sea. What else are they going to do? They're not just going to keel over and die. They've been evolving for thousands, tens of thousands of years. They're going to adapt. And they adapt by eating your food. You've taken theirs. They'll take yours, mate. All fair and, and love. <laughs> okay. All right. I will, uh, I will grudgingly concede that the seagulls belong in Sydney. Thank you, Grania. Have a great month, Sydney. Bye. <laughs> Happy New Year.